Welcome to Black Earth Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Atieno Osieo. Black Earth is an interview podcast celebrating nature and the incredible Black women leaders in the environmental movement. In today's episode, I'm joined by Atuki. Atuki is a mother and inspirational creator of UNIA. Named after her grandmother, UNIA is a storytelling platform using African mythology to educate children, parents, and caregivers about climate change and earth care. Join us in this amazing conversation as we explore how African mythology and storytelling is crucial to making climate change and joyful activism more relatable, empowering, and culturally relevant. Through reclaiming African histories and knowledge and building relationships across generations, UNIA brings conversations on climate change out from the policy spaces and street protests into homes and communities where they belong. Atuki, thank you so much for joining us today at Black Earth Podcast. Um, could you please introduce yourself to our listener community? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Atuki. I'm a mother to a 14-year-old called Malakai. I co-founded UNIR, an online educational platform and community dedicated to making the environmental space and the environmental conversation more accessible, diverse, and inclusive. And um, we bring this vision to life by facilitating learning through alternative education, transformative experience that sit at the intersection of the environment, culture, and well-being. And our mission is really to create a welcoming space where parents, children, caregivers can ask questions, a place for them to explore as a collective or as individuals, also a place for them to nurture their imagination, a place for them to go on exciting journeys of exploration, and a place where we inspire each and everybody, individuals or them as a collective to connect with nature. Wow, thank you so much, Atuki. I'm very excited to explore uh, like your vision and your work at UNIA in our conversation. Um, Atuki, how would you describe your relationship with nature? I love, love, love this question. Um, nature to me is home. Um, and uh, when I think about it, nature is like an old wise friend, that friend who is so full of wisdom I am so full of ancient knowledge, much like the wise old Rafiki um, in The Lion King. I think about nature as a teacher, you know, I learn from nature's resilience and I also learn from nature's unspoken wisdom and sometimes spoken wisdom. And um, nature can be a friend or is a friend. And um, I think sometimes in friendships, you don't need words. So, yeah, it's it's that not needing words. And it's my ultimate place of healing. 
it's a go it's a place I go to in moments of despair and the more I think about the question I'm now thinking about in a relationship uh in everything I've said it's more about me taking from nature and not about what I do for nature still I'm not thinking what do I do for nature it's it, yeah it's making me think so I'm going to think a little bit more about that yeah thank you for that question it's made me think it's all good it's all good um I think it's a uh, there's so much that we receive from nature that it feels quite natural for that to be the starting point when we think about our relationship with nature um but it goes deeper than that like we are we are nature um that's the tea <laughs> that's the secret sauce um and um you know i love that your when you're describing your relationship with nature you're actually thinking about nature from a place of relationship um which is something that is so um important for us to cultivate in in our lifetime so um yeah thank you for sharing that and also for being vulnerable in kind of reflecting on what you're saying um so yeah that's amazing um so I am so excited to speak to you about uh Unia um I actually so I'm going to give an explanation to our audience So Atuki and I met through an amazing initiative in London called um the Climate Community and Health Fund. Um so it's a a fund of 450,000 pounds that was set up by Impact on Urban Health and Do It Now Now. And I was on the grant panel uh to to help select some of the initiatives and Atuki was one of the amazing recipients of this fund and Unia just stands out as like a world-changing initiative like i feel like if this was in everyone's home around the world things would be really different in this Thank planet <laughs> so um uh atuki please could you tell us more about unia like how did you come to create unia yes i uh... Thank you again for that question. Um this is going to be a long one. <laughs> in 2020, um I don't know if you remember it, uh East Africa had one of the worst floodings and many people lost their lives. Other people lost their livelihood. People lost their homes, you know, their heritage, their culture, and uh many had to leave their communities. So during this time my mum and dad who live in Uganda also had to leave their home and right up to this day they have never been able to move back and um i remember showing my son malakai pictures of the floods and what happened to his grandparents home and uh he asked me what happened so i told him it was the effects of climate change you know the extreme weather conditions sometimes it was very hot and sometimes there was too much rain so i'm um, malakai looked at me and made a, he made a comment he said and this is a baton how did the ice melt all the way from the polar bear's home and flow all the way to uganda this is east africa uganda kampala and i knew then in that moment that i had to do something about that statement it made me realize he didn't quite 
know a lot about climate change, the effects of climate change, and how the global south is affected by it right now, not in the future. And it was happening to his grandparents. He lives in London. His grandparents live in Uganda. And it's a relationship bound by love. And it was happening to them right now, not in the future. So I put together some content for Malachi to read and hopefully understand climate change. Um, but climate change is quite complex. And um, <laughs> it didn't go as planned. <laughs> Nothing I put together was working at all. Everything was grim, sad to read. And I know it's the reality, it's what's happening to people. And I wanted him to know what was happening. But it was a lot. It was a lot for a child to, 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 to deal with because all he knew was recycling and upcycling. Um, he didn't know exactly what was happening to his grandparents, to his family um, right now. So it was quite difficult. It was overwhelming. And for him, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. So a few weeks went by and uh, one one day Mali came to me, just, just you know, just chill. And he said, well, mum, I know about climate change. So I asked him, how did you learn? And then he said, the Ninkinanka. And I know you might be wondering, who is the Ninkinanka? I'll tell you. <laughs> so the Ninkinanka is an African mythological creature and the Ninkinanka is a dragon that lives by the Gambia River. So the Gambia is a country in Africa um, and the Ninkinanka calls its home. Sorry, the Ninkinanka's home is by the Gambia River. And so you might be wondering again, how does the dragon teach a child about climate change? And its effect. So I'll take you back to where it all started. I've always wanted to say this in the in the Beningi. <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> I'll take you back to the beginning. Um, so Mali absolutely loves to read. Uh, he reads in the bathroom. He he reads in the toilet. He reads at the dentist. He reads anywhere and everywhere. Um, so in 2020, we we're in lockdown. If you remember, we we're in lockdown. Um, he, he's got books, but he'd read all of them. And so he was getting bored. And um, for me, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get him any more books. So I asked him if he could uh, read about African mythology online. So he tried, uh, but the content online was so overwhelming. There was a lot of information overload and it wasn't really interesting. I mean, now there's a lot of interesting stuff out there, but before there wasn't really much for kids. And uh, the great thing is in that experiment, I call it an experiment, he was able to uh, find his niche. He was really interested in African mythology, specifically African mythological creatures. So together with Malachi, we went on a journey uh, to rediscover these creatures, to reimagine and retell their stories in a fun, engaging way, in a fun, engaging way, but in bite-sized formats, easy for children to digest, 
easy for parents, for anybody to digest, like the ABCs of a creature, like meet the creature. And the Ninkinanka story was one of the stories that we reimagined. So again, you're probably wondering how Malakai was able to figure out climate change from the creature. <laughs> so I'll explain. Um, the Ninkinanka is a dragon. So by the Gambia Riverside, past animals big and small, there's a forest wide and tall where the Ninkinanka live 20 in all. The Ninkinanka have a body of a crocodile and horse-like heads with three sharp horns. The Ninkinanka stand big and bald and the scales on their neck to the pointy tip of their tails glisten like gold. At night, the Ninkinanka love to swim, so they go to the Gambia River and dive right in. They eat fish for their breakfast and snakes for their lunch, but naughty little boys and girls are their best thing of all, <laughs> their favourite munch. So when naughty children wander into the swamps at night, the Ninkinanka lie in wait. The children vanish, never to see the light. But there's one thing all children learn to lose an Ninkinanka at every turn. Would you like to know the secret too? They show love. That's all they do. So repeat these phrases and you see the Ninkinanka will surely flee. I am loved. I will be kind. I will be respectful. I have all I need. So that's the story of the Ninkinanka. And it lives by the Gambia River. So on the surface, it's the story of a, of a dragon that lives by the Gambia River. However, because Malachi thoroughly enjoyed this story, he was motivated to learn more. And in wanting to learn more, he was able to explore multiple things like the Ninkinanka's home that has mangrove trees growing by the riverside. And these mangrove trees are incredible for absorbing CO2. The animals that live by the Gambia River, there's nearly 600 species of birds. There's all sorts of animals, birds that migrate from the Gambia to the UK and migrate back to the Gambia in winter. So he made that connection, the interconnectedness of all living things. So this particular story allowed him to explore the complex concepts like history and the environment and ultimately allowed him and I to sit down and create a framework for understanding the complex concepts of climate change. And now we're sharing it with everybody and we hope we can inspire more children to learn. <laughs> Wow, I would I would love to find out because Unia has now evolved from um, the storytelling element of your your work to now creating spaces. 
for parents and caregivers and communities to come together to learn about African history, African mythology, African geography, uh, about climate change and earth care. Um, so could you tell us more about where UNIA is now and um, I guess the aims of your platform and the types of principles that inform um, what you do now as a platform? Yes, um, thank you for that question. So I'm at UNIA, we believe that connections between humans and our ecosystems are vital, not just for a healthy planet, but for personal and collective growth. And we believe that to truly, truly fight for the environment, to be kinder to it, we must connect with it. And we see this connection as a representative and we see this connection as an opportunity for individuals and communities to undergo transformative journeys and not just altering how they think, but how they interact with the world and how they as a collective or as individuals take action, take climate action. And so we think that, or we believe and have seen that this transformation paves way for people to live, li to live lives in harmony and in coexistence with the natural world. So based off of that, we focused on four main things. And the first is building community um, because we know that creating an informed and empowered community with shared responsibility in shaping a better world makes things easy to get done. So we're intentional about this, this community being intergenerational and being space where people can learn from each other, learn from their unique viewpoints and experiences and values. So an intergenerational space that's empowered. And the second thing that we do is empowering action. As I mentioned earlier, we in our sessions have creative writing. And uh, this is off, based off the fact that we believe everybody needs to have a voice to speak to, to talk about the things that they care about and to make sure as individuals they realize their full potential and their power. And I say that as an introvert um, who absolutely hates standing out there and speaking, but being able to be creative in my thoughts, in my thought process and having the power to do it and having people actually believe in what I'm saying and being passionate about something has helped me be vocal about things I care about however I know that I had to start from somewhere and it was about being creative and thinking about how I say things and what's more impactful and we believe creative writing is is really empowering and we've seen it happen um, so the third thing is improving well-being um, we create opportunities for children, parents and caregivers to engage with the natural world, with the environment. Just be out there in nature. Nature is healing. And I love what you said about nature being we are nature. So be out there and just take it in and just nurture that relationship. Nature nurtures. Um, the other thing is uh, we just want to inspire joyful activism. Just back to what I said about Malachi about the news being so grim things just so sad um we wanna 
we want children to do it and do it happy to promote joyful activism and just encourage parents and children to be excited about making a difference and not just seeing it as a chore because if it's a chore it's just oh yeah I'll get it done and I'm out the way no it's actually in a way that can transform into sense passion or purpose thank you thank you so much Atuki I'm so inspired <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm curious to, to hear from you what some of the kind of examples of the difference that UNIA has made in, in children, as well as, um, parents and caregivers. Um, could you share with us some examples of the difference that, um, your work and, um, your platform is making in, in people's lives? Um, I have quite a few, but I'm just going to pick uh, that the Cubs team line. So um, from the storytelling, what has happened is it's mm-hmm. the storytelling has set the stage for an in, for intergenerational climate approaches, which are creative. Some are still crazy. They're out there. They're unbelievable, but they're believable. I mean, they're creating worlds out there that, bring them joy, bring them purpose. So setting that stage where different generations can collaborate at the different stages of their lives has been incredible to witness. And I I am really honoured to be in that space and just witness what different generations are doing and collaborating with each other. And what's happened organically is because parents have started to care about the environment, um, they share their childhood stories, their experiences, their ancient wisdom, their customs, their traditions, their connection to nature. And I think what has happened is these stories of growing up have created a sense of familiarity for the kids, a different way of learning about the environment. It's also created some safety and a lot of curiosity for the younger generation. and. In that way, we've just been able to build connections between the two generations off the back of storytelling. So I absolutely love that. And um, another example is exploring work within the environmental sector. So we have a particular story about the Aziza, who are fairies from the Dahomey Kingdom of West Africa, and they are quite... Fun. I mean, I love the Aziza story. They have hair in every style, short hair, long hair, locks, you know, twists and curls, <laughs> coils. It is incredible. I love the Aziza story. And it's had really significant impact in introducing children to the notion of environmental protectors. And ultimately, them asking if they can get work within the environmental space. And we talk to them about people like Zandile Lovell, a South African uh, freediver. She's the first black female freediving instructor in South Africa. So, you know, you've got kids thinking, oh, I want to do that. So the environmental sector, I think we all, I think you've spoken about it about this being the second least diverse, <laughs> ethnically diverse sector in the UK. Um, yeah, so, in the UK, uh, it's ghetto. <laughs> it's the worst. But yes. we continue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
absolutely. And uh, yeah, back to uh, what we're saying, it's inspired um, children to take action. Um, and an example of that, which I absolutely love, and I think a lot more people should do, is where we've inspired uh, this boy. He's, I just love his, his energy. Um, through a focus group that we have at work uh, at Unir, we put a group together and we're working on a project up. Uh, We'll tell a lot more about it. Um, so he's been inspired to start a campaign at his school to recreate the map, the, the world map representing Africa's true size. Because what happens in the sessions is because we're talking about African mythological creatures. We're really intentional about teaching the kids about Africa's basic geography just the foundation this is its true size it's the second largest continent in the world it might look small however it is the second largest continent with over it's multiple countries we teach them about basic geography because i think what happens is a lot of people tend to think of africa as a single unit so we always are intentional about kids knowing it's not a single unit. This is its actual size. So we taught him about uh, the Mikata projection and how uh, because of Gerardus Mikata, the map of Africa is much smaller than it is. You know, the Mikata projection, that's a different story. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a different um Could thing. you give a bit more background to that? Because not all of us know. <laughs> yes. So... I'm the Mikata, well, I think all of us have seen a map of uh, the world um, and the African continent is large. However, the map in Norway, the map in Norway shows Africa as the second largest continent. And there's a reason why. So in uh, 1569, so Gerardus Mikata, a cartographer, a cartographer is somebody who makes maps. He created what is known as the Mikata map. And the Mikata map was used for navigating the seas. And it was essentially for sailors as it provided a simple way for them to navigate across the seas. So the land masses on the map are not necessarily proportional to the actual size at the higher latitudes and sorry at the higher latitudes um the land masses appear larger than their actual size and i i wish i could show you with the map of mikata um it is it's the uh the globe so Africa is banging them not really banging the middle it's obviously on the equator so on the light the latter the, the higher side the, the higher up you go the um the land masses are bigger because it was stretched out and it was made because of the sorry it was stretched out because of the Mikata projection so although Mikata made globes he later transferred the maps from a three-dimensional curved surface to a flat sheet of paper in a process called the Mikata projection and as a result of that the map of Africa was completely distorted and it's really problematic for many reasons <laughs> because Africa is sitting on the equator. It's, it's not really distorted. However, it looks a lot smaller than it should. So yeah, from the globe to paper, God caused the distortion and therefore um, 
Africa appears much smaller than it is. There's a much simpler explanation, but I hope that Yes. And and so this this young, amazing young teenager is started a campaign yes. to in in their school yes, to he did. yes. Uh he, he what we realized is with these distortions, the Mikata map is still being used in classrooms. Classrooms it's being used by Google. And when he realized he's like, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm gonna change that. And so he started a campaign to get it back to where it should be to a world he's seen the world as it is and the world as it should be with Africa standing tall reflecting its true size um yeah also think about uh, Black liberation movements throughout history, especially modern history, um, creating learning spaces outside the school system was one of the kind of core tenets of the way they organized. So, I mean, I'm thinking about like the Black Panther movement, for example, um, but I'm also thinking about um, just now in the environmental movement and environmental spaces um, yes, for example, in the UK, the diversity of uh, the environmental sector profession is very low in terms of ethnic diversity. But when you go outside these definitions of what a sector is, there's so many like community groups, community learning spaces where people are learning about, you know, how to grow. They're learning about history. They're learning about um you know, uh, like life skills, you know, in terms of how to uh, live in nature. They're learning about all these amazing things, but it's outside kind of formal learning spaces. Um, And I think that's really something for us to learn in terms of um, how, you know, reimagining the environmental movement. How can we create spaces for people to truly learn in a way that... um, is liberating, you know, is liberating for themselves and liberating for the community in which they they belong to. Um, and I just think it's so dope that you're using African mythology <laughs> as the gateway um, because that is also a remembering of ourselves um, as, as African people, but also, you know, just grounding this work in helping us remember that we do have so much knowledge and information and wisdom to tap into as we move forward in this work. So, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that. (laughs) It's amazing. You're welcome. No, I totally agree. (laughs) No, I agree with what you said about there's really incredible people out there doing a lot. I mean, just look at the, you look at the people who uh, we met, groups of people doing incredible things and they're out there and I get I I get asked this Mm -hmm. question a lot actually and people keep saying well I didn't know about you and we we are asking ourselves about 
how do we go out there and let mm. people know about the work that we do? Because um, we did, we do get that question quite a bit. Yeah, of, I didn't know about you. How come I don't know about the work that you do? So we probably need to do better <laughs> at letting people know um, that we exist. <laughs> I would say yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely there's a there's an element of needing to share the work that you know you do, we do, everyone, so that people who need and want um what we're creating, they they're able to find it. So there's this that's a continuous process. Um I also think there's something about um, in in kind of social change and social innovation, um, us redefining what scale and growth looks like. So um, there's a, I can't remember the name, but there's a, a social innovation map. I'll put it in the show notes. But they, um, um, the creator of this map redefines what scale looks like in social innovation. So there's... Um, Scaling up, which is about trying to influence like laws and policies and, you know, trying to change basically the rules of the game so that, you know, things can get better. Um, There's scaling out, which is about sharing knowledge or information to as many people as possible so that they're able to, I guess, take on that information and make different choices um, and then there's scaling deep, which is about changing the the mindset and uh, the value systems and the frameworks that frame our society. So it's really about the mental models that shape the way we think about reality and going deep to change that. So scale looks different. You know, it may be that you can influence one community and that's not, you know, billions of people, but the change that you do in that one community can be so transformational um, in a way that's different from 100 million people reading about your work. Um, So I guess I just want to affirm that, yes, there is um, a responsibility to, to share the good work that you're doing so that people who need and want it can receive it. And that's, you know, organic and intentional at the same time. And then there's also the element of redefining for yourself what's what impact looks like and how growth manifests from that. So you're not chasing numbers when really you should be that. chasing I mindsets. That. If that Listen, makes sense. I, I love it. <laughs> so that is, oh my god. Yeah, I love it. I love, I just love what you said. I'm gonna read a little bit more about that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I will send it to you after and I'll put it in the show notes. I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the person, but it's it's called scaling, Thank basically, you. scaling and social innovation. Um I I love what you're you're doing in terms of um engaging with children. Um firstly from your experience with with Malachi, um, but also now through your platform. Um, and I'm I'm curious to understand uh, what lessons you can share with us um, about how to engage um, children on, you know, climate change, uh, joyful activism, uh, earth care, 
you know, how to engage them in a way that is empowering for them? Yeah, I I love the question because what we do at UNIR is we want everything that we're doing to be authentic. We want it to be things that people can relate to, things that they recognise, things that they can look at and see, oh, I see myself in that because you can share as much as you want, but as long as people don't connect with it, it's not going to take them anywhere. And what we found is by incorporating African mythology and storytelling, what we've done is made the topic of climate change more relatable and culturally relevant. So children, parents can relate to these stories. You know, they see fairies that have black skin, that have curly hair, cool coils that curl, <laughs> and, you know, locks and everything. So they identify. I mean, you should see the faces of the girls when we bring out what in the part of the Aziza story. Um, you know, that the Aziza fairies have hair in every style. They have short hair, long hair, locks, cool coils that curl, and they absolutely love it. So they relate to the Aziza, they see themselves in the Aziza and they go out in the parks, in nature to meet the Aziza. So they're relating to it. And because of that, they're able to take action, um, do the things that they love, but with things that they actually can see and they see themselves. So from that point of view, I think um, we've been able to have great um I don't want to say success. We've been able to connect with people. And when you think about storytelling, specifically myths, myths are like timeless stories that connect with all all ages. Everybody loves mythology. And it's not just about the physical adventures. It's about the journeys within our hearts, within our minds. And myths have a way of inspiring us to just face the challenges and just conquer difficulties. We're like, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm going to be this person who's going to go out there like a hero's journey. Um, so we've uh, we've got a framework that we have. I think we've not perfected it, but we learn every day and we add things to it. But we've made it fun. We've made the format such that the stories are quite short bite-sized content engaging but also we've made we've made sure that within the storytelling the kids are learning multiple things like life lessons like how they can build connections and the stories obviously are really helpful in in helping the kids explain nature explain the things that happen in the world and the stories have been great inspiring action as well so with that, the one thing I think that has been quite impactful is with each and every story, each individual goes on their own personal journey of learning. They're able to um, be accountable to not other people back themselves. So each person's got a learning guide and they can start from anywhere. Obviously, we start from um Africa's basic geography but the journey that you take is an individual's journey and if you want to take it as a family then you can do it if you want to take it as an individual you can do it you start where you are these milestones these learning guides these accountability and we always ask that they celebrate that there's short objectives 
And if they get to the point where they've ticked a box, they celebrate it with us. So, you know, I think having that accountability and just making sure it's all relatable. I've said a lot to say it's all relatable. <laughs> so that that is uh, the point at which we approach it. Yeah. The point from which we approach it. when I was growing up there was a lot of things in the mix that just meant that as a family we just couldn't go out like and you know be in nature if that makes sense um firstly like my parents were working all the time you know typical immigrant story like they were just on the grind 24 7 so there was just like there was no time for us to be able to do stuff like that um and then there was just things also like access, like we lived uh, in a city, London, and as amazing as London is in terms of like parks and green spaces, London is actually really good, but um, that was not accessible to us. Uh, and I don't know why, but it wasn't accessible to us. So there was just a lot of things in the mix. Um, and I know an important element of the work that we're doing is, yes, really creating spaces to engage um, young children in an empowering way to learn about nature, to learn about themselves and their histories. But it's also to do with um, supporting um, parents and caregivers to feel empowered to be able to, to do this work. Um, and so I'm curious to understand, you know, through your platform, what are some of the challenges that, you know, you've seen um, Black parents or uh, caregivers of Black children um, face in terms of being able to um, engage in earth care, being able to support their children through, um, you know, being environmental, joyful environmental activists, as you, as you said. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, gosh, this question, I feel a bit triggered. <laughs> not in that way um it's, it's quite sorry girl I'm sorry <laughs> it's just the thought of uh what parents uh actually having to deal with um and being in the thick of it and navigating that world has been really challenging um because just as an example we do have parents who struggle absolutely struggle and uh, to access green spaces there are a lot of barriers social inequity access to green spaces I'm you know and the barriers are practical financial cultural and and sometimes it's a combination of just poor quality and quantity of green spaces near to their homes and fear opportunities um to visit green spaces. So yeah, we've we, we've had quite an experience uh, with access to green spaces. And 
at the moment we've got a focus group actually we just recently created where we're learning about the uh, the barriers to green spaces for parents and we are getting down to the ABCs and thinking about what we can do to talk to the leadership, people in leadership positions about the experiences of the black community in green spaces, the lack of access. Like we've got a group of people, well, I say a mum, not a group, a mum who, who's got a child who's autistic and uh, there's a park where they live. However, it's, there's no grass. It's just swings and all that. And her child, when her child goes out there, a lot of the time, she does not feel comfortable in that space. So they never go out. Not that they don't want to go out, but there's just different layers to it. It's just too difficult. And we've got another parent who also has a child that's autistic. And they do go to the park in Peckham. However, there's dogs around. And with a child with who's got who's an autistic child, the behaviour of a dog is very unpredictable. So now they haven't been out for six months because of that one particular experience. So like you said, there's so many layers um, to accessing green spaces. And we really, really want to approach this from a point of changing policy. And that's why we created the focus group, just to sit down and break it down. But we're also going to do it in a fun, engaging way for them through storytelling. So um, the stories are going to be specific to um, particular topics like accessing green space, kindness to the environment, barriers to the environment and things that the parents are going through and the kids as well. So hopefully at the end of the year, not the end of the year, at the end of, I think it's February, we'll have a lot more to work with and have some tangible evidence to walk up to, you know, people in power and just say to them, listen, this is what the people are actually going through. Because right now what we're finding is, yes, people say there's diversity. However, who's making Who's making the changes? Who were they for? You know, <laughs> how are you buffering on the other end? How am I, How? where am I in the decision-making? We need to center people's voices in decision-making, their lived experiences, the things that they go through. And we cannot use a blanket way of doing things and think it works for everybody. It just doesn't. There's way too many layers. I'm in accessing green space and you know within families a mom's working at night the dad's working in the day when do you access the green spaces there's just it's a lot it's, it's quite upsetting sometimes <laughs> and it's a lot to deal with but we are um we now looking at uh, actually coming up with tangible evidence and you know sharing it and hoping that we can in many ways um, influence policy making and I think in, in in everything that you do if you've got lived experiences and you're able to show this is what we're going through people will probably listen to you um, yeah hopefully and we've got a listening campaign also happening um, around access to green spaces we do want to get real evidence of what's happening on ground and present that um, 
to those in charge, really, those who were making the rules for everybody else. Yeah. Thank you so much, Atuki. Um, I really appreciate how just through your response, you've been able to show that there's so many different elements to what enables a person to be able to access green spaces. So yes, it's about geography, but it's also about um, affordability. Um, it's about, um, you know, what's happening in their homes, you know, in terms of their roles and their responsibilities. It's, it's about poverty. Um, it's about relationships as well. I think having a network of people around you to be able to support you to to live a quality of life is really underrated, um, but it's so crucial um, to, yeah, to like a sense of security and well-being in the world. So I'm, yeah, I'm really inspired by that and how that's coming through in your work because you're working with children and engaging parents and caregivers and seeing the interconnectedness of it. Um, and now, you know, through uh, engaging and and consulting and um, through your focus groups, really bringing these insights in a way that um, will hopefully inform um, evidence and policymaking going forward. That is like really um, inspiring. Um, and I also wanted to share something that I've also learned in this journey of like speaking to you and finding out more about your work. Um, I think in the mainstream environmental sector discourse movement, <laughs> in the mainstream spaces, a lot of action is like, it's either individual action. So what an individual can do in terms of recycling or walking instead of driving and all these things. And then there's systemic change. So what's the, you know, what do governments and businesses and, um, you know, large scale actors, what do they need to do to be able to shift a system towards um, environmentally friendly and fair and just world? And I feel like that your, um, the work you do with Unia um, challenged me in a good way to, to see that that binary that binary of individual and systemic action actually misses out um, other forms of um, other units of being, which is things like family, um, and I know in in the environmental space we talk a lot about how sometimes individual action is like promoted so much, but that leaves short the fact that some of the big transformations that need to happen are actually at the systemic level. But I also think trying to have that binary of individual and systemic change misses out the fact that actually individuals exist in different units. It could be family, it could be community, it could be neighborhood. Um, and those are also very important spaces to explore in terms of understanding 
okay, how do we create spaces where a family is empowered to, um, to be in deeper relationship with earth, to take care of earth um, in a way that acknowledges their interdependent relationships in that family? What does that look like at the neighborhood level? What does that look like um, in a school level? So um, it's just a question that came up for me as I was learning more about your work, um, how the space, there's a gap between individual and systemic change. I think we're missing something here. Um, And to explore that deeper in my own work as well. So um, thank you so much, basically. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I think I remember once, I, I'm not sure it was, I think it was Emmanuel, um, a little while ago having a chat and he just said to me, he, he was thinking about and trying to understand that how change can occur when enough people are united and empowered to take meaningful action and how each and everybody's needed, each and everybody's voice is important um, to create a future for all, to create a now for all. And just what does that look like? You know, and for me, it's just looking at the world as it is and as at the world as it should be and just trying to navigate it um, from that point. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I I have two more questions for you. <laughs> one okay. one is one is to do with um, just from the focus groups that you're you're hosting at the moment, or from your experience um, as a founder of Unia. Are there some um, solutions, like policy solutions, emerging? that you would recommend to kind of policymakers who are listening into our conversation today? I think it's really important that we centre the voices of different communities because right now what's happening is things are being created, rules are being created by people, by a particular group of people who haven't got the lived experiences within each community. Has its own you know, it's on difficulties, it's challenges, the things that they face are completely different. No one group is the same. Um, So having that blanket way of doing things does not work anymore. It cannot work. And I think having these examples of this is me, this is my life, and it might not look like your life. However, it's important that you think about my life and as a community and the communities that we work with, no one person's the same. Everybody has different challenges. Everybody has different challenges. And we need to center those voices. We need to listen to them. And I think a lot of things start from community engagement, community education. Um, and when people are empowered, and they know their power, they know the impact their power can make, I think we will start to see some radical change. But first, we need to make sure people understand that they need to centre people's voices who are actually going through it right now. 
Thank you, Atuki. Um, Atuki, how can we support you and uh, the work that we do? I'm, I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're working and doing this community work, you forget about, you lose a lot of time, energy, <laughs> space um, to do, I say this from a place of, um, of learning about, sorry, of learning about how to engage with people, being an introvert, of putting myself out there. Like now we're running a focus group and for me it's very difficult to uh, sort of engage with people in a way that, how can I explain this? Um, I'm trying to get the right words. As an introvert, you do things differently. Your engagement with people is different. So where you've got to put yourself out there, you know, talk to people, and if it matters, you get there, you get it done. Uh, but what I find really daunting is approaching people and a lot of gatekeeping within um, the climate space. There's so much gatekeeping. Um, people don't want to help out or collaborate and if they collaborate, it's not it's not authentic. It's always about you losing the very essence of what you're doing to accommodate their needs. So we've always found that there's been um, too much pressure to to do what fits different people's agendas uh, at the expense of what we're doing, and because of that we've we've had to I don't want to say go it alone but just stick to just doing what we have to do without tapping into the different resources that are out there that would be really beneficial to us so I suppose for me it's just saying if you're out there and this is something that you want to get involved in <laughs> just reach out uh, we're not going to change our agenda we're not going to say just storytelling and not African storytelling that is our purpose African storytelling you're not going to believe it but somebody said to me once um, can you not just do storytelling I said no we're doing African storytelling and we're not going to change our agenda to come and speak to you about the things that we do so it's very difficult um, where to get things to from A to Z, you've got to reach out to people, but a lot of people are wanting you to change and wanting you to fit their box. And I'm a non-conformist. Uh, I just, I'm a rebel. I'm just like, uh, <laughs> not for me. So I think we've lost a lot of opportunities. I just not even lost opportunities. It's just, we said no to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, said no I'm and being firm and not we've not moved I am not doing it so I suppose what to answer your question it's very difficult for me to put myself out there because because of our experience with people wanting us to change what we're doing mm -hmm. uh, without naming anybody I'm in a um, diverse and inclusion group mm -hmm. and um I come out there feeling stressed out. Mm. It just it just stresses me out. Mm. Um, their agenda is not 
it, it just it's just doesn't align and I'm planning my exit and if any of listening yeah I'm out <laughs> my exit because it just I just don't yeah it's a lot I it's a you're lot. freeing yourself you're freeing yourself is long I hear you you're freeing yourself you gotta liberate yourself don't worry it's all good <laughs> say no more we understand we at Black Earth we understand <laughs> yeah it's a lot yeah so yeah what I'm hearing from you is um whoever is inspired by your mission your philosophy your values um specifically centering and celebrating you know african mythology african storytelling in earth care um should connect with you and anyone who isn't aligned to that should find someone else <laughs> in a nutshell in a nutshell yeah yeah it's so it's so important to stay true to yourself and yes. um yeah so yes. atuki thank you so much for this amazing conversation and we are so excited that you have joined us for this season of reimagining the environmental movement. I feel that everything that you're doing uh, with Unia is kind of representative of that, you know, um, building new worlds, um, centering joy and belonging and effective action and deep relationship with earth. Yeah. And it's just really wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really loved it. And um, yes, thank you. I appreciate it. And it's been great today. I'm. Um, thank you for your words. And thank you for this platform. It's really needed uh, because people like me who have experienced a lot of gatekeeping are able to speak about the things that we care about um, in a space where we can be ourselves and not think about the words that we're saying so thank you for that appreciate it Thank you so much for joining us in today's conversation. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. We are on Instagram, TikTok and LinkedIn at Black Earth Podcast. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, your communities. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Black Earth is a proudly independent podcast and we are on a mission to reconnect and heal humanity's relationship with nature. If you'd like to support us, we are on Patreon at Black Earth Podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.